What is up? What is up? Welcome to Hans Athletics Radio number 12. We have Ethan on the podcast today. This guy is a stud. Okay, you want to listen to this podcast? He gives us some good information on his past as an athlete and his future as an educator. And we get into some research he's been doing and how that may affect you and be a positive thing you can do in your life. And uh, make sure to just listen in and, and pull these nuggets out, get a notebook out, because this has got some good stuff in it. Enjoy. Cool, man. Well, first off, I have like 12 listeners, so don't sweat it too much. And uh, kind of what I wanted to have on you when she said you would be interested in being on here, I think it would be a great fit. We can talk about kind of your background, yeah. um, your schooling, and then I'm actually really interested in what you sent me over in terms of what you guys are studying right now as well. So we'll probably yeah. get into that towards the end. So um, if you can, just a quick summary of your background. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, uh, I've always been into, into sports and athletics uh, ever since I was really little, um, playing all kinds of different sports. Um, but mainly the ones I focused on when I was you know, in high school um, were football, basketball, and track. Um, and kind of cultivated that, um, love, I guess, uh, through just lots of hard work and, um, you know, continuing to try to push the boundaries. And I, eventually I, I got a, a scholarship to go to UC Davis, um, to run track. Um, and, and I was a pole vaulter, so I was, uh, running and, um, jumping all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, but, uh, that, that kind of really started the, the interest for me. And, and, um, you know, I, I thought as far as the academics go, I thought, you know, I wanted to get into PT or, uh, something of that nature, uh, when I was an undergrad. Um, but, um, really kind of, I got drawn into the the physiology and stuff like that in my undergrad towards the end of my undergrad and, and, um, ended up, um, taking a course that, that really kind of changed my mind, I guess, about, about what I wanted to do. Um, and, and in the, in the course of that, uh, you know, transition, I was coming to ISU to, to continue to, pole vault and, and jump with, uh, the coach at ISU who's now since retired, but, um, he, uh, you know, my, my love for vaulting kind of led me to ISU and, and to, I, I did the, the, um, masters in athletic administration, um, and physical education kind of on the side, I guess I was really mainly interested in continuing to jump and, to perform well. Um, and the, the getting the masters was just kind of a bonus. But, um, when I started to, to kind of transition out of vaulting, you know, it was a kind of a, a series of injuries and issues that I've had, you know, jumping so long and at such a, a intense level. Um, I was, uh, drawn back to kind of the the education and the physiology and I wanted to come back and do my PhD and in, in kind of a related field um, I, I now I study um, exercise and the effects on aging so 
Um, I'm, I'm really interested in kind of, in, instead of the performance side of it, you know, that's what kind of got me into the exercise physiology. Um, now it's more so kind of the health uh, benefits. So I've, I've transitioned from sort of this egocentric uh, view and, and trying to improve my own uh, performance to now how can I, you know, help improve the lives of other people and um, particularly with, with aging populations. So Brad, that's so kind yeah, of that, background. yeah, that just gave me like a million things I want to ask you about. So okay. um, at ISU real quick. So that was post when you were jumping there, that was post collegiate. That was like training yeah. beyond collegiate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, How was so, that? Was it, what was your goal? Were you, um, you know, I was, I was training to be, uh, I was hoping to be and make it to the Olympics. You know, that was the, the ultimate goal. Um, and I never, you know, it, it was, I, I like to tell people that it was, it was post collegiate. It wasn't really like professional, even though technically it was, cause, um, I did end up winning like a small amount of money at one meet that I went to, but, um, there you go. yeah, it was, uh, that was a, definitely a highlight, but, um, you know, I, I wasn't good enough to be, you know, one of the top jumpers in the country that are still quite a lot of people that were, that were better than me, but I was, you know, I was trying to make it to the Olympics. Um, yeah. So, so you, uh, you, I mean, you have the experience at least of that amount of dedication and that amount of kind of putting a focus on something to where you're trying to be the best in the world. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I have no idea reference wise, but for those, if any of you listening, what was your best jump ever? My best jump ever was 17, eight and a half, which, which so really 17, nice. 17 feet, eight and one half inches. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. it's, yeah, it, I, I would say like 18 feet is like the threshold, uh, to, to be considered like uh, an elite jumper. Okay. Um, so I wasn't quite there, but I was close. Close. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm still, st- still kind of bitter about that today. I should have had 18 feet a couple of times and just barely missed it. So, <laughs> so you were jumping, you still continue to do it. Uh, not now, but oh, I, thought, I, I mean, in, in my, yeah, my time at ISU, I, I should have made 18 feet. I, I should have been, yeah, yeah. that's all right. It happens. Uh, awesome. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring it back a little bit just cause I just have some, I'm going to kind of bring my own agenda into it. So I was, I'm curious, um, in those younger years, so middle school, um, high school, do, did you have like a good training regimen or now that you know what you know, were you doing things that, cause I know you, you dealt with some injuries. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do think, well, as far as like middle school and high school, there was definitely a, not so much in middle school, but in high school, there's definitely a, a pretty well-established training program, um, with both football and track and field. Um, so the high school that I went to is pretty well known for, uh, their, their football team and, and the track and field team actually as well. So my, um, coaches on both of those teams were really instrumental in I think, um, forming me into a well-rounded athlete yeah Um, and and definitely the the weight training component that I got from football was a big benefit to me uh, in track and field kind of moving forward with my career um, because it it kind of uh, 
helped instill some of the, the work ethic and, um, and passion for the weight room that, that I think helped me get to the point that I was at. Um, you know, without that, there was, there probably would have never been a, you know, a, a, a professional push. Um, yeah. You know. Awesome. Did, so did you feel prepared when you went at, to UC Davis? Like when you walked weight room wise, like, did you walk in there and know a lot of what they were doing and be able to transition quickly or did you have to go through a whole transition period? No. Yeah. I, I actually, I felt much more at home in the weight room than I think most, uh, you know, high school kids coming into, uh, college, especially in track and field, you know, you get a lot of, of athletes that are just really good high school athletes that don't actually like they, they didn't spend a whole lot of time in the weight room. If they're, if all they focused on was track yeah. and they, you know, we get into the weight room and, and, you know, their eyes get really wide because they've never lifted a weight in their life or it was a very small component of their training where, you know, I spent quite a lot of time in the weight room um, in my high school year. So I felt way more comfortable and able to, to push myself in the weight room. Um, I had never done any Olympic lifting up until like when I got into college, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, in, in high school, but I don't even, I don't remember it. Um, but, but the Olympic lifts were, I felt like they were the most fun and, and I enjoyed doing those a lot. And I know a lot of people, uh, when I was at Davis that were you know, averse to that and they didn't really yeah. enjoy that stuff. So, but I do think that it's a, it was a big, because it's, you know, there, there's such powerful, uh, movements and whole body exercises that they're really beneficial for, um, developing power and, and speed Excellent. and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Cause I, I've kind of been on that topic on myself in my head is cause we're, I have a gym here in Pocatello now and we're starting to get a, a poll. We've been open for about almost a year, but we're starting to get, um, we only do one-on-one and individual and small group, but we have a good group of high school kids that are starting to come in. Mm-hmm. And then online I'm working with, actually I got a couple track and field high school kids and it's all relatively um, new for those guys. But even just, so these guys are, they're pretty high level already high school runners in Preston and they have no experience like lifting it all in the gym. So the idea is to help those guys get like a base level of strength like you're talking about because like literally we back squatted once and he was sore for a week. So yeah. it's like, and what will happen is maybe he can get away in high school, but then if he gets picked up by college, right, all of a sudden he's going to be expected to do this training. And then, you know, best case, I mean, worst case he gets injured, best case, it just, I, I think it still slow down his progression at the college and his ability to run if he's mm-hmm. sore all the time because now he's expected to do things that he's never done before. Yeah. So, yeah. We, I've been, yeah, we've been doing a big focus on getting high school kids, but really, you know, we have experience in the collegiate weight room and we want to prepare them to step in like a transition smoothly. So yeah. Like seamless transition, teaching the movements they're going to know, need to know how to do. And, right. Um, teach them how to move well. So I was just interested in how, because it seems like it's pretty consistent with people that are successful in sports. Almost always they have a very good background and we're able to move into like a college scene feeling somewhat comfortable and we're able to push their training because they kind of knew what they were doing. 
Right. Yeah. I, I do think that's a big component to it because, um, you know, even I, I felt like in my experience at, at Davis, you know, even people who were somewhat familiar with the weight room um, still wouldn't necessarily want to push themselves super hard because they were afraid of being sore for the next day, the workout on the track the next day where, you know, I was, I was kind of the opposite. I was like, you know, balls to the wall in the weight room and I didn't care if I was sore the next day, I knew it was going to help me. So, um, but the, the, um, yeah, the underlying kind of basic movements that you need to learn, I think, um, to, to be comfortable in the weight room, uh, should be, you know, started early in, in high school and even middle school if you can. Um, because I, I mean, there, there has been, I think the, the, this is probably since gone, but the, the belief that, you know, you shouldn't, uh, have young kids lifting weights is, is not necessarily true anymore. I don't think, uh, I mean, I guess if you have any experience in that uh, area. Yeah, the stigma is kind of, I mean, I believe it still probably exists, but there's definitely research out there that says, no, like it, the only time it's going to hurt your kid is if, you know, it's, he's doing improperly overloading, whatever. So I would recommend a coach at that age or right. having like a watchful eye on it, like a parent that's well-versed in the weight room. Right. But in terms of like kids lifting, it's like, so they can't go outside and play because they might, you know, pick up their buddy or it's just, right, like, right. it was just kind of this thing where, yeah, I never really bought into it. And luckily enough people didn't buy into it that they've done some research on it and put it out there. Yeah. But yeah. I'll train a kid. I've trained kids as young. Like we start at eight years old. We don't really, we don't use a barbell a ton, but we're just teaching the primal movement patterns. You know, we teach mm-hmm. them how to step up, how to lunge, how to squat, how to press, how to pull horizontal and vertical. And then those movements, those basic, like those category of movements is exactly what carries, that's the only movements a human body does, right? So then they carry over to the field in the future because they're able to step well, so, or step up well. So they're probably a decent sprinter because they know how to pull their knee high and drive through the floor and pull with the hamstring. Like, so a lot of that is just, I, I always try to get people to get the kids in, but you'll still run into, oh no, my kid probably shouldn't be yeah, pushing himself at. 13 you're like yeah you know <laughs> yeah. and well and then that, that that's the irony because then they they get down to a, a a field or a court or whatever in high school and the the competition level jumps up you know and and they yeah. end up getting hurt because they're not strong enough or or powerful yeah. enough to to withstand some of the especially in like things like football and basketball yeah contact sports and that and that even gets in but that even leads you down the road of like a lot of these kids are getting injured too because of overuse right so then you'll have parents that are like no they can't lift weights or have a structured strength program but they're going to play four sports and play year round and there's going to be no training to counteract what they're doing so like if you have a volleyball player or you have somebody that's rotating one way like if you're not you know track and field you probably jumped off one leg when you would go to do like the same leg every time when you went to do your pole vault if you're not training those imbalances, cause you're going to create imbalances. That's part of playing sport. So yeah. if you're not, if you're not fighting those or trying to reverse them or at least, you know, alleviate some of that, then people start to get injured. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think, um, 
know, the, the literature is, is definitely pretty clear in, in stating that, you know, young kids should be doing a, a variety of different sports and not just specializing in one. Um, but I, I think that there's definitely going to be some, some more, um, push uh, into the weight room as kind of a tool to reduce some of the injuries that, that you're seeing in overuse stuff, because you can definitely, it, it, you can definitely train in a way that doesn't cause an injury um, and actually prevents future injuries if, if you know what you're doing. And so I think that, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the key though. You have to know, know what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of it, what I run into that just, I just freaking slap my freaking forehead, you know, as I'm like, you run into the, the moms that are like, yeah, I'm sending my kid to five QB camps this summer. Mm. Uh, he doesn't have time to, you know, work with a trainer. And I'm like, first off, four out of those five QB camps are just money makers. They're not really looking at your kid. Right. Second off, like you need to utilize that time. Like, how about he goes to one camp? this summer and has a coach for three or four months and let's see what pays off more like his five, the five camps he did last summer. Or let's see if we see a performance increase by having like a structured strength program with a lot of attention right. for four months. Like, yeah. and, and it's just a lot of people don't get it. They're like, he's just got to play a sport only and he's got to go to five camps and that's how he's going to get a college scholarship, which isn't always yeah. the truth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think, you know, at that young uh, developmental age, they, they have to be able to know, they have to practice moving their body in different ways to, to figure out, to then be good at specialization later. You know, mm -hmm. if they, they don't know how to, to, you know, activate their, their glutes or whatever, when they're, when they're sprinting and, and accelerating in a sprint, you know, how, how are they going to be able to, to do anything uh, yeah. worthwhile in any sport really. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's definitely the area, one area where um, we'll improve with, with the young kids as, as far as strength training goes for development. And that yeah. Sort of thing. No, I think, I think it's spreading like the knowledge is spreading a little bit more that, you know, it's important. Um, I think that, it's just ironic. I think high school strength coaches, like those guys almost have more responsibility than a collegiate strength coach. So like, yeah. but it's, but it's, ver it's flipped to where, you know, they don't make any money or they, it's not worth their time. So they're not as invested per se. Yeah. And, and even the college strength coach is underpaid in my opinion for at most places. But, um, cause they spend a lot of time with the strength coach. And like you said, if anything, just being in that environment develops, I mean, if, if somebody can teach your kid how to look them in the eye, how to take feedback or like negative feedback and turn it into a positive and like kind of, kind of make more of a resilient athlete. I mean, college coaches are looking for that too. Like college coaches are looking for your kid can be as athletic as, as they come. But sometimes some coaches, if you know, he's a prick or he doesn't listen or he just misbehaves, like that's it. And all, and everything that every God given talent he had, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, there's nothing more humbling than uh, failing on a, on a squat attempt, you know, or, or, or yeah. whatever, any lift. So I, I think that teaches them a little, you know, a little humble, to be humble in the, in the weight room. That's definitely uh, yeah. one contribution to coachability. Yeah. 
Do you stay uh, up to date with ISU at all or not really? Um, I haven't been, no. I'm, I'm not familiar with any. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I did recently hear that the AD was let go. Um, yeah, so Pauline, do you remember Pauline? Theros? Um, yeah, yeah. She's she's the new AD, which is good. They got a new strength coach. It seems pretty good. I think they're taking the some steps in the right direction. So I don't yeah. know. Is that Dave? Is Dave Nelson still at ISU? No, he. Um, so he was he retired uh, the the actually the year I left. So in 2016, I think mm-hmm. it was his last year. Um, and now the the track team as far as I'm aware is still being coached by his predecessor Hillary um, Merkley Mm -hmm. Um, she was one of his athletes um, okay and and came back to coach um, under him and then he left and and she stepped in so uh, did he coach Stacy Dragilla is that how he's okay so that's what that's the name people might know right yeah in the pole yeah yeah. So Stacy, uh, Stacy, I, I met Stacy for the first time when I was at ISU. Um, uh, when I like first got to ISU, I think it was the summer of 2013. Um, and you know, being a pole vaulter, you know, you know, the name, you know, she was the, the first female, uh, gold medalist in, in the pole vault. Um, cause they didn't even have pole vault until, 2000 in the Olympics, yeah, which is crazy. But, um, yeah, so she was the very first female gold medalist. And, uh, I remember seeing her on the track and, and meeting her for the first time. And just like, you know, you have that like yeah. jaw open, you know, like, wow, this is wow. Stacey Gila. And then she's just super nice down to earth, you know, um, mm-hmm. That was, that was a pretty cool experience. And I, I've interacted with her, you know, several times since then when I was jumping. Um, and, uh, she was always super helpful, especially if like Dave wasn't around, you know, she would give some advice here and there, like let you know if you're doing something wrong or So did you get a train like alongside her or was she kind of more? No, she had retired by the time that I, I had gotten there. Um, she was, she was an athlete there in the, early nineties and then stayed and trained with Dave until the mid, uh, like 2002 or 2003, I think. Yeah. And she ended up retiring. I don't know what the the timeline was, but the mid two thousands, I think is when she was retired. Um, so she's coaching now and I believe in Boise, she has a, a coaching, um, she has a facility, I think that she trains people at. So yeah, that's, that's awesome, man. Maybe that kind of fueled your, you know, being around people that are great, it makes you want to be great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It, it contributes because, you know, you see the, you see firsthand the, the dedication and focus. And I think that was part of my motivation to move to ISU is because Dave had created this environment, particularly with pole vaulters. There's just people just like gravitated to him. And, um, you know, that, that was, that was the environment that I wanted to put myself in because I wanted to, to compete and be the best I could be. Yeah. And get better. And yeah, you gotta, you gotta put yourself in, in the environment around people that are as good or better than you mm-hmm. uh, to really continue to grow, I think. Awesome. So what, so I said you were dealing with a bunch of injuries in 2014 and 15. Yeah. What, what specifically. 
Um, so I, I had uh, actually a double hernia um, when I was training. And um, this was in, I think, in like December or January 20. 2013, 2014. So January of 2014, I think is, is probably when this occurred. Um, and I had, so I had to have surgery and I was out for a couple of months. Um, and, you know, I think the, the issue for me was more, had always been with any injury that I've had, um, has always been more psychological really than, than the physical part of it. You know, the, the, the pain or discomfort or even the surgery really wasn't that big of a deal, but it was the, the stress of not being able to train and not trying to continue to progress and, and feeling like I'm, you know, falling behind was, was a big, uh, a major issue and challenge for me to try to get through, you know, I, and I'd always, you know, come back to earlier, you know, with, yeah. with anything. Cause I, I just wanted to be back out on the field and, and, and jumping again. But yeah, so that's, that was, that's funny. Cause I, I was going to, that's what I was going to ask you more of what, you know, with the mental, because that's, that's yeah. usually the struggle with the athletes. Like we know, you know, you're going to get hurt. Like that's just part of it, or you're going to have some injuries or pain, but when right. you are out and you can't do what you love to do. Yeah. You did a great job of kind of explaining how you, you know, how you felt about it and how you dealt yeah. with it. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's really tough. And then, you know, the, the, the injury that really like ended it for me, well, psychologically was the, the kind of the final blow was, um, I, I broke my ankle, um, in gymnastics. Uh, so as vaulters, we, we do, we had, two days a week where we would go into the gym and do some gymnastic stuff because it's, you know, it's very, uh, gymnastic oriented, you know, everything after you take off in the pole vault, after you take off the ground is all a gymnastic move basically. Yeah. So, uh, we spent a lot of time in the gym and I, um, we were warming up one day and this is about a week before the final competition of the, of the season for me. And, um, I was doing just a routine tumbling pass, uh, you know, round off back tuck. And I came down on, uh, I came down and just landed weird and my right ankle, like just buckled underneath me and felt a pop and, you know, just, I went down hard and, um, I, I kind of hobbled around on it for a few days before going in to see a, a doctor that did an x-ray and said, at a, at a little avulsion fracture, which means the, the tendon on the inside of my ankle, like, or sorry, the ligament that connects the big bone on the, the malleolus on the tibia on the inside of your um, ankle yeah. and the other small bones um, had pulled some of the bone off, uh, pulled it away from itself um, on the, the, on the inside of the ankle. And so I was walking around for a few days with a, broken ankle and ended up having to be put in a uh, boot and crutches for four weeks. And that was, um, pretty, that that was, that was kind of the final blow for me. Yeah. (laughs) Does that one still bother you at all? 
yeah, I still, I can still feel my ankle. Um, like if, if I run for like a long distance, um, usually like by the end of the run, I can feel it and through the next day, um, and it's not really where it broke, but just the joint itself feels swollen and, and tight. Yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah, I tore my Achilles like two and a half years ago and it's still, I could have surgery and everything, but it, I mean, I can kind of do it, but I still like it's, I'll go to decelerate sometimes. I'm just like, Oh man, like it definitely keeps it. me from doing some stuff I'd want to do in terms of like long sprints, quick stops, like when I'm playing sports, I can definitely be like, Oh man, lost yeah. a step. And you know, I'm trying to rehab it and stuff, but I just, I feel like they take a long time and it's the whole time. It's just that whole kind of mental battle of, yeah. I don't even really, I'm not even like competing in anything. I just, you know, you just want to be able to do the things you want to do. Right. You know, like you yeah. want to go out and play some pickup basketball with your buddy and not have your Achilles hurt every time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I definitely dealt with my fair share of injuries. So I kind of know the the pain of it and, you know, I, I can't imagine though, like making it that far and be training that hard and with that in my, in like that goal and then ha- just having kind of repeated injuries and just situation, just be like, well, it's not going to pan out for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, it's, it was, it was definitely crushing. I mean, I, I, I did continue to train after that, but I never, you know, even six months after I was, I, I've, you could just feel it when I was running and yeah. jumping. And so I, I never really felt like I wanted to like push it as hard as I could. And, and I knew at that point, like I was just, I, I wasn't going to be able to, to train at the level that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And, and so I ended up kind of, uh, I slowly faded out of, of competing, you know, um, yeah. professionally, but, there were, that was kind of the defining moment that led me down that path, yeah. you know, so. And, and at least, and what I find is in the, I mean, typically you have people like that, that are good, you know, you're really dedicated to something like athletics and then, you know, shit goes bad and either you kind of just throw a pity party or you find another way somewhere else to put that energy. And it looks like you, you know, you've put that energy towards, uh, for me, it was into the more strength conditioning side. And for you right now, it's a schooling um, the teaching or, or what, I don't know what you want to do after, but you know, you're gonna have a pretty sweet resume of education yeah. and. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I think I, I briefly mentioned, you know, I, I had this one class that I took my last year as an undergrad at UC Davis that really you know, kind of pushed me my interest towards the the physiology of the performance side of things and um when i went to isu you know like i said it was primarily to be to be training and on the academic side of it i i just i felt like the classes were interesting and things and and that sort of thing but it wasn't like as gripping to me or or enticing as as some of the other stuff so i wanted to go back and and i change gears, uh, to the, back to the physiology. And, um, so that's, I, I found a, a good home here at NAU for that. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, you, so what were you studying when you were in Pocatello at the Pocatello Orthopedics and Sports Medicine? What were your research? So I was basically, uh, it was a, a long kind of series of events, but 
Dr. Joseph um, at the Pocatillo Orthopedics was the one who diagnosed me for the hernias. And so I had known him through that. And then I needed a, I needed an MD on my committee for my thesis um, at ISU. And so I asked him to, to be on my committee. And so that's how that relationship started. And then um, when I was done at ISU, I graduated in 2015 I needed a job. And so I just asked him, you know, you got anything for me to do? Uh, And so he just kind of found some, some odd things for me to do at the, the um, orthopedic center that he works at. And so I, I was mostly working on um, trying to find ways to improve patient outcomes in their, in their clinic. So most of the things that they see are, either sports related injuries or, um, you know, orthopedic issues because of age, you know, knee arthritis, shoulder, hip, all that kind of stuff. Um, so they did all the, you know, a lot of, um, knee and hip replacements and, and shoulder replacements, um, in that office. And, and Dr. Joseph was on kind of the, you know, he was the guy to go to if you didn't want to do surgery, you know, if you wanted to get some injections or, um, try some other treatment before you kind of went to the surgery. Um, so he did a a lot of different, um, you know, injections in, in the joints for patients that were, I remember seeing one guy, uh, he was like a regular and come in every three months for an injection in both knees. And, uh, so a lot of my job was to try to figure out which treatments that he was doing was most beneficial and helps the most in the long run. Um, and so I would kind of characterize it as, as, um, you know, trying to do, doing research on patient outcomes and seeing how they felt and, what treatments worked best for them basically. Yeah. That's awesome. What, so what's, when you finish schooling, what's your ideal thing you want to do? Um, do you want to get into? Yeah. I want to stay in academia. I want to, I want to teach and do research at a university. So be a a professor. Um, Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, my, my goal is, well, so after you finish a PhD, there's a, um, position called a postdoc or postdoctoral researcher. So you have your PhD, you're, you have a doctorate. Um, but it's kind of like, um, it's the equivalent of, of med school and residency. So the PhD is like, is, is your, the, the equivalent of medical school, but you know, as a medical student, after you graduate med school, you don't actually go practice medicine. You do a residency for four years somewhere and, you know, then, then you're kind of, you're basically, you're a doctor with training wheels and that's sort of how it is with, with a PhD. Um, you're a, you have a doctorate, but you still got your training wheels on. So you need to do a little more research. So yeah. basically, uh, I want to get a, a postdoctoral position that, that basically just focuses on the research. You don't have to do any of the schooling or anything like that. Um, get some more publications under your belt and then you can start applying for, uh, positions as a, as a faculty member, basically. Cool. Yeah. That's rad. Yeah. So the more in the education piece. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So let's get into real quick. Let's talk or maybe not quick, but let's talk about 
who is your, so you're just for the listeners, you're studying the effects of exercise on aging, which you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you said it's more of a health than a performance mentality. So who's the, who's the population that you're testing right now? Right now it's all, um, healthy, uh, older individuals. Um, so they're, they don't have any kind of disease, uh, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, anything like that. They're, they're older, but otherwise healthy. So anybody above 60, um, qualifies for the study that we're conducting right now. Um, and we're actually comparing the effects of younger and older individuals. So we have younger and older men and women that are in the study, um, and we're, we're using the young individual sort of as a, a control, right? So a yeah. young person responds to a, a bout of exercise, uh, in a certain way. Um, does that differ when you're older? And then, um, you know, how, how does that change with exercise training? If, if the older individuals, um, are different initially in their response to an acute uh, or a single exercise bout, how do they, do do they become more responsive like a younger individual, uh, after exercise training? How quickly Um, they adapt essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. And it says you're, you're doing, uh, men and women and you're doing aerobic and, um, anaerobic is what i'm guessing or is it just extra or is everything are you doing everything is and intensity or is it more just everything is um aerobic uh, activity that we do in, in the lab it's um <clears throat> hard it's it's a little bit harder to control for intensity and duration with resistance training and there's a yeah. lot of labs uh in the country that that do a really good work in, in resistance training um the particular um, cell physiology that we're interested in is we, we think mostly activated by aerobic activity. So um, that, that is kind of the, one of the main reasons we chose to do aerobic um, aerobic exercise for, the, for this study. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. What, and what, what implements are you using? Are they, are they running, walking, biking, what, or what? So, yeah, the, so basically the study involved has three different visits. So the first is a, a VO2 max or maximal aerobic okay. capacity. So um, your listeners would probably know this is just a, a maximal aerobic capacity test or fitness uh, to, to determine your fitness. It's, it's the gold standard of, of, uh, measurement for how well you can take up and utilize oxygen. Okay. Um, so we do that test first and then they come back in and they do a second test. And the second test is uh, a bike uh, exercise for 30 minutes at 70% of what they maxed out at uh, for the first visit. And we do a series of blood draws um, and we measure certain markers in the um, white blood cells that we're interested in. Um, so we, we want to see how exercise activates these um, pathways that are involved in stress resilience or stress resistance. So um, usually in an, a younger individual, they respond pretty robustly to any kind of physical activity, really. Um, and one of the previous PhD students that my advisor, um, had 
had shown that there was a blunted response in this pathway um, in older individuals when they were comparing young and old, but they only did an acute, a, a single exercise bout. So um, we wanted to, you know, extend that to see, you know, okay, does this, uh, well, the, there were two things. One was that first study didn't include women. So they were trying to control for the effects of estrogen if there were any um, on this uh, signaling pathway. So we wanted to include women in the study. And then also um, if there were any differences after an exercise regimen. So if it's, if this pathway is blunted in a single exercise bout, you know, can you restore it with regular exercise training? Mm. Um, and so, so far what we're seeing, um, with the the data that we have collected, um, is that they are improving, um, their ability to, to respond to both an exercise stressor, like an acute exercise bout. And, um, we do this other test that's a a non-exercising stress test. That's basically we, we, uh, put a blood pressure cuff on their arm and inflate it for 10 minutes. So we leave it on and it occludes some of the blood flow to their forearm. And we do this three different times with a a small break in between. And what this does is it causes what's called an ischemic stress in their forearm. And um, you can measure uh, certain metabolites in the blood uh, after that. And usually what happens when you have a healthy and, and strong system that counters that stress, um, these metabolites remain relatively low in the blood. Um, but what we've found is that older individuals, it peaks uh, and the peak is much higher and it's sustained for a longer period of time than, than the younger individuals. Okay. So um, this just regular aerobic exercise for eight weeks actually restores that and makes it them look like they're responding like a a young individual. So um, we think that's kind of the most powerful, um, you know, piece of evidence for, from our lab really is that from a health perspective, um, exercise restores an older individual's capacity to, to resist certain stressors. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of the, the key, uh, public health piece, if you will. So it's never um, too late. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is never too late. These, these individuals, some of them have never exercised in their life. Um, yeah. particularly the older women, um, which, you know, I, I had never even, this had never even occurred to me before we started this study, but, I remember having a conversation with uh, a woman that um, she was, you know, saying women, when I was young, we weren't allowed to exercise. Like that was frowned upon, you know, they told you, you could, you, you would, you'd fall apart and you'd break. You're too frail and fragile. You know? And so we obviously know that that's not true, but um, it's, it's crazy to think that um, not that long ago, that was the idea the attitude. Yeah. Yeah. So are the, are you finding that let's say an untrained individual, are they responding quicker than somebody that maybe has had a, I don't know if you're getting a pool of people that maybe have been more active throughout their life. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a, a relationship between the amount of physical activity that you have done previously and, and your responsiveness. Um, 
So because this is a stress response system that we study, um, we are seeing that the, the more fit you are, um, the lower you have to uh, active, the, the less you have to activate this system, which okay. indicates that at the same given intensity, you're not as stressed out. Yeah. Basically. You're resilient to the stress or right. yeah. Whatnot. Um, yeah. yeah. And are, are these, I always am curious to look into like, you know, they just say if you've been active your entire life and let's say these guys have stopped or they're not as active as they used to be. I mean, if they would adapt quicker, if they got back into a more active lifestyle than someone that's untrained, or if the kind of idea would stay true where since somebody's untrained completely like that woman's never exercised in her life, she's going to have a massive response right off the bat because, you know, she's never exercised. So she's going to adapt, but then age, where does the age come in? You know, there's a lot of questions that it brings into my mind. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of factors I think that come into play. I think, Generally speaking, as we get older, we become less sensitive to the stimulus. So at a given exercise intensity, an older individual probably gets less out of that or less of an adaptive response than a younger individual. Um, I would think that if you had been previously trained, and I don't know for sure, but... um, I think if you had been previously trained, you you would probably be able to respond and adapt more quickly than someone who hasn't. Yeah. Um, you know, if, so if you were an athlete for your entire life and then you stopped when you were 30 and you picked it back up when you were 50, um, at least doing something active, um, you would, I would imagine you would probably respond better than somebody who had never done anything their entire life. Yeah. Well, let's hope. So all this work yeah. and pays off, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, another question. Do you, are you finding that um, women or men are having a better response? Actually, the women are having a better response than the men, which uh, is really fascinating, particularly with the, um, the non-exercising challenge. They are, there is a much stronger relationship between their fitness level and their fitness level changes over time um, and their changes in the non-exercising stressor. So it appears based on the data that we have that um, the more a woman improves on her aerobic fitness, the greater her uh, capacity to resist any other kind of stressors. Um, this is not necessarily the case for men. So the, the relationship is not the same, which is very interesting. We're actually publishing a paper on this. Um, well, hopefully it'll be, it's in review right now. So hopefully it'll be, we'll get the word if it's accepted or not within the next couple of weeks. But, um, yeah, the sex differences are, are fascinating. That's interesting. It's almost like maybe, maybe it's because, um, I mean, women in general have to be more resistant. Typically, I feel like they're just like more emotional creatures and are kind of developed to or adapted to, you know, take care of children, like be able to care for someone and themselves. 
yeah. at the same time. Like you, I just feel like there's a lot of stuff that goes on where they have to be more sensitive, but also be able to handle more stresses than men. Maybe hey, we just yeah. get really pissed off and like throw a fit and then. It's <laughs> right. But they, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, it is, it, it is very interesting. And um, we've also, so all of the women in, in this current study that we've, we, we're working on and we have started to publish is, they're all in postmenopausal women. So they've lost okay. the, the estrogen levels. They've gone way down compared to a premenopausal women. Mm. And so one of the other PhD students in my lab is, is working on um, studying this specifically in, in the effects of um, estrogen and postmenopausal women on these same sort of stressors. But, um, we, we think that estrogen does have this protective effect. Um, we've seen that in other studies from other labs that um, estrogen can be uh, protective, of, particularly with the types of stressors that we are looking at. Yeah. Um, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, when you lose estrogen, you know, after menopause, they, they um, you know, you would expect to see, a rapid increase in these kind of stress markers that we're looking at. Um, but the, the effects of exercise seem to be protective and blunting that. So, you know, the question then becomes, are we, a lot of, uh, postmenopausal women are on hormone replacement therapy, right? So they take, mm. uh, estrogen. So the question is, you know, can they actually get away without taking estrogen if they just exercise? Exercise. Because there's all sorts of side effects of taking exogenous estrogen. Um, and, and so, um, if you could get away without it and still get the same beneficial effects, then, you know, that's a good option for some people. So um, we, we don't know for sure yet, you know, wh whether or not that's the case, but that's kind of our hypothesis is what we're thinking is, is going to come to fruition with our studies. So, yeah. Are you testing it all with the men different like testosterone levels and the ability or. No, that's, that's one thing that, um, you know, it, if we had done this differently and we, had, we, well, we didn't really expect any sex differences. So we weren't looking at any sex hormones to begin with when we first started this study. But, you know, if we were to go back and design this again and do it again, I think looking at testosterone and estrogen levels in the blood would be a really interesting component, I think, to the to the study, but we don't have any of that data. So unfortunate, but no, that's rad, man. Yeah. That's all, that's all super interesting. It's, it's, it seems like it's pretty everywhere I run into people I talk to, I think our generation is trying to, I think everything's going to become more holistic rather than just like, here's a fix. Right. You know, like what you're talking about, you know, maybe, maybe a doctor, because I know a doctor that's been fired for prescribing exercising instead of like a pill. So it's like maybe in the future it's going to be more of, you know, the push for staying healthy and exercise in, instead of immediately going to modern medicine, you know, maybe we're going to find a better balance of 
that. So, right. I yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think, um, you know, the data are very clear in that, um, exercise is really one of the best behavioral modifications that we can make to, to improve our health. Um, the number one, well, I should say number two risk factor for all cause mortality is, is your fitness level. Number one being your age. Um, you know, so your, your age predicts whether or not you're going to die, um, pretty, pretty easily. Um, you know, you can, there's a pretty linear trend there, but there's also a, um, a very strong relationship with, with how fit you are. And, and, so the, the more fit you are, the less likely you're going to die of anything really, even as you yeah. get older. So, um, that, that's definitely, um, the message that we try to send to all the people that are in our studies and, you know, just in general to try to educate people about, you know, the benefits of exercise. It's not just about losing weight or looking good in a bathing suit. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's not super more than that. Right. Yeah. No, that's cool. That's cool, man. We, um, we're not, I'm not in that, that side of it, but what we're looking at right now and what's been pretty fun is I've, my gym's now combined with the PT clinic. So I'm getting to work with more oh, cool. like people from like an academia side Yeah, for a long time. Like, uh, I don't know. So sometimes there's just not a very good relationship between like different fields. Right. And we're starting in Pocatello and I'm sure other places have done this, but we're going to really try to bring, together a bunch of different professionals and see if we work all together what we can accomplish right so we're gonna have pt we have massage therapy um we're i mean it would be awesome and it's been talked about to have like a mental health wellness yeah yeah therapist type of thing and then everyone operates in the same building so they come and they can see and work with people within like a unified setting of let's work on this let's do this let's do this today you know yeah that's pretty cool yeah, it's it's pretty cool, man. I, and that's thanks for filling me in on that research. That's uh, yeah, that's awesome. And there's a lot of there's a ton of questions that pops in my head, but there's just so many. Que- it's like you never know. Like I'd want to know what type of like fitness markers are the ones like because I know I know that strength also plays a big role in like being able yeah. to take care of yourself. Like, yeah, we did some we did some uh, just not in-depth research but for my at the end of my schooling we kind of worked with a pool of people that were in a that were outside of a self-assist or were be able to take care of themselves at home and people that were Mm -hmm. in assisted living and it came down to mostly base strength levels like the ability to stand up the ability to pick something up off the counter and whatnot so and i'm sure it all ties in though in terms of you know if you're usually if you're fairly aerobically fit you have the ability to also maintain and keep your strength up as well right yeah definitely and and um you know my a lot of my interests are in the kind of the cell physiology and molecular biology of of exercise and how we adapt and it's um it's interesting because um at that level uh if you're looking at skeletal muscle cells and how they respond or adapt to different stimuli like resistance training versus endurance training, um, they're, they're sort of at odds, right? The, the underlying molecular signals that occur are, uh, they block each other, 
right? So yeah. if, if the concurrent training effect, you know, if you're doing both endurance and resistance training, you're going to get less of an improvement in both yeah. compared to if you're doing one versus the other. And, um, but, but the, so the problem is they're, they're both good for you and, and you want to do both, but yeah. you know, how, how do you appropriately, design training to to make sure you maximize the benefits of both and you're getting the adaptations from both the resistance and the endurance training um yeah yeah because the trick is how do you put them into like an aerobic state like let's say you wanted to put them in an aerobic state but you wanted to keep just the high intensity intervals but how then but then how do you you know how do you apply that to a general population and not just like a fit 20 year old that you can just right. kill and mess up a hundred times and then right one time, you know? So yeah. how, how do you take something where you can get them aerobically fit or, or increase their aerobic capacity, but in my, with my bias, keep it more of a strength orientated adaptation, yeah. you know, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, there, there are several different ways to do it. I think, well, really any, anybody's going to improve dramatically from going from not doing anything to doing something. Right? Oh yeah, um, for sure. So I think, you know, if you, if you have a, especially an older individual that wants to start training or, or um, whatever, they're going to be able to respond to both at a pretty decent level, at least for their health, I think. Um, yeah. You know, it's the, the, I guess the concurrent training effects really start to get intertwined and tangled up at the high levels of performance, you know, like, so, so CrossFit people and, and people that are like, um, decathletes and heptathletes, you know, you, where you have to have a huge amount of strength, but also have an endurance component to your training, um, and to your performance, um, is incredibly demanding. So, so, one of the things that I've seen um, that you can do is is kind of um, train. You, if you split your training up, you know, if you're a, a professional athlete or somebody who's trying to be like a high level, yeah. But you're doing both. Um, you know, splitting your training up so that you're doing the endurance activity uh, in the morning and then your your weight training in the evening or vice versa. Um, just so that you have enough time during the day to replenish your glycogen stores and your, your food yeah. stores basically for the recovery and adaptation period. Right. So, and I've heard in my field that it's like six to eight hours between sessions, but I don't know if that's been like actually nailed down or not, but. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm familiar with as well. I would think that, you know, doing something like an endurance training in the morning and, and lifting in the evening, you know, right, right before or after dinner, yeah, you're going to have, you're going to maximize your, your effects of both, both training sessions. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, that, and then this, this will lead me into kind of my last question and then we'll have to do another one, but okay. Because uh, this is easy, we're going a long time. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to know. I want to know, kind of. Then I'll give you a little background on why I want to know this. But what you think made you take that leap from performance to health? And the reason I ask that is, you know, I, I got when I was done with sports, I got into the coaching, strength conditioning side, 
And you always have that idea of, I want to work with like, I want to work with the best athletes. I want to, you make the the better best. And, you know, that's kind of your vision for it. But over my like 10 years of coaching, it's been more of, I actually almost enjoy now. I have a mixed population. I have people that are international weightlifters and I have high school athletes. And then, but a lot of my clients in Pocatello are 50 to 45 to 60 year old females and males that basically just want to move pain free and, and feel better. And like you said, like you're not going for some crazy stimulus. You're just trying to mentally and physically help them feel better and improve their life. And I've almost, I really enjoy that. I've almost found more um, yeah. satisfaction in working with the health side and then I'm getting into like the training pregnant women side too, like that, which is like, not sounds crazy, but yeah. So oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. I think, um, my transition really was like, I don't know. I, I actually had a discussion with, uh, another pole vaulter, uh, when I was still jumping and he had just decided to retire and this was a kid that I had competed against since high school. And he was a, a, an elite athlete. Um, he jumped over a foot higher than me um, and made it to Olympic trials and almost made the Olympic team one year. I think it was 2008, maybe, um, or 2012. But anyway, he, um, you know, he just, he said, I'm just tired of, of doing things for me you know, I want to do stuff that helps other people improve their lives. And so that, that was his justification for retiring. And I think that message kind of hit home to me because I was close to when I was ready to, to hang it up as well. And so I think, um, you know, I never really thought of that explicitly, but now looking back, I, I, I think that was part of my motivation as well as to, you know, I was doing, I was pole vaulting and I was training like these insane, intense hours, um, for me. And it was enjoyable for me up to a certain point where I, I just got, you know, I burnt out with the injuries and all that stuff. So I, I realized that I wanted to do something else to, you know, to help other people and, and to try to improve their lives. And, and so it definitely shifted from, you know, the, the selfish perspective to, to, to being able to, to try to help other people improve their lives. And I think that exercise is a, a great way to do that. And it's one of the best ways to do that. And, and the literature definitely supports that. So, yeah. And that supports your kind of getting an education too, is then, you know, you're taking, not only are you learning yourself, but you're taking that and trying to, you want to teach that or apply that to and help other people. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what's cool. That's what's cool. The connection I think you can find between any, a lot of different fields is it's like, you know, fitness is just an avenue that I've chosen to like help people. Like you can do a million different things, but you know, it's, it's just awesome to talk to people that want to help other people and like are driven towards learning to share. So that's cool, man. Yeah. Um, so one question I always ask at the end is what's one piece of advice from your life and experience that you can give to, and I didn't really prep you for this one, but that you could give to the listeners that they can, something I like stuff that's more actionable. So something that maybe they could start implementing now. Yeah. Um, so I think 
I have um, two pieces of advice, I guess. Um, the the first is uh, to try to get, you know, if you're listening to this, you're obviously, um, you know, interested in, in exercise and fitness. Um, the, the, one of the most important things I think that people can do is to try to get other people, friends, family, loved ones to exercise with them, do something active. Um, and that not only improves their lives, you know, especially if they're sedentary at this point, but, um, it improves the lives of everyone around you, you know, and it has amazing effects on not just your physiology, but psychology, mood, uh, even weird things that you wouldn't even think of like your, uh, financial wellness. Um, so I, I would encourage people to, to get the people around them to exercise with them, bring them to your gym or, or whatever, um, go on a hike, or walk, bike ride, whatever. Because I think that that's, um, that's an incredibly important piece, particularly with the older individuals, because a lot of older people are, are completely sedentary. Um, and so just a little bit of activity helps improve their lives. Um, the second piece of advice is more, more so for the, the people who are, who are interested in, in the performance side of things and trying to improve themselves. Um, I, I think, um, in, in retrospect, um, I, part of the reason I got burnt out is because I was going so hard so often that I just, I couldn't handle it anymore. Um, and I actually think that that was, that was detrimental to my performance. Um, great athletes aren't, aren't great because they have these consistently heroic efforts in the gym. Um, they're, they're great at being consistent. You know, they, they show up every day it might not be, you know, they might not be going a hundred percent every day, but that's the difference between, you know, a really good athlete and the, a, one that is successful throughout their career and one that burns out like I did, you know, yeah. um, at, at the end of the day, if, you know, if you and I are both training and you're, you're training at hundred percent. Uh, but you can only do the hundred percent three days a week because you're so exhausted from the training, but I do 80% and I do it six days a week. By the end of the year, I've had way more volume than, than you. Right. Yeah. So uh, the, we, I think we need to take a, a long-term approach to, to training and, and um, cultivating our athletes and not like, there's no such thing as an overnight success, particularly with, with exercise and, and, um, performance. Um, it's, it's about being consistent and, and doing things right for, for the long term. So that's awesome. uh, that would be my, my, uh, advice to the, yeah. the youngsters. Write that, that are, down everyone. Yeah. That's that great, man. Yeah. Um, longevity. I love it. We, yeah. that's kind of, yeah, we definitely play in that pr principle. You know, when we have kids come, we're like, you know, we don't want this to be a three month relationship. So we're looking for, we want to train you for years, you know, right. and that's the focus is the longevity piece, right? If you, I yeah. mean, it's cool, you can go a hundred percent, but that you have to be smart about it and you have to, I mean, ideally those hundred percent are game day on the field. 
right? Not yeah. necessarily in the gym. So you don't want to be a, a practice player. Yeah. So dude, that's that was amazing. Do you? Last question. I didn't prep you for this either. Just to, real quick, if you had a book recommendation, do you do you like to read? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I actually have um, the 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 book that I would recommend is called um, Peak Performance. It's uh, it's a book by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And actually, part of that spiel was you know conceptually from their book. Um, so it's uh, it really kind of tries to change the frame in which we view our our um, performance, not just in athletics, but in any field, um, any profession, really. Um, Americans typically have this really unhealthy work ethic where it's like, you know, you're working crazy hours and, and super hard and you end up getting burnt out uh, really quickly. Yeah. Um, and I think that this book sends uh, a really good message on, and how to, to try to combat that and, and to be uh, present in the moment in your training or your profession, whatever it is. Um, and, and to kind of give you the tools to avoid burning out and to continue to be successful in whatever it is that you do. So, awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That's the Hanson Athletics book club, baby. So we'll read yeah. that peak performance. Cool. Um, and if lastly, if they want to find you somewhere or kind of follow along. Yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I don't really do any of those, but, um, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta maybe think about picking up one of those and kind of share I, maybe what you're doing with research. And whatnot. I know I, I need to be better at it. Um, so my Twitter handle is at Ethan underscore Ostrom. Okay. And I'll link all these. So you don't need to spell okay. them. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then, um, yeah, just my, my name for Instagram and, and uh, Facebook. So yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll try to be better about posting stuff on yeah. social media. Even, even if it's just like sometimes, yeah, social media can still be a tool for sharing like what you're doing. You know, yeah, somebody's yeah. interested in kind of following along with that. I know I am. So I would love to follow and see yeah. just update your Twitter once in a while with, you know, this is what we found. This is pretty cool, you know, or yeah. something like that. So definitely. All right, man. Thanks for uh, hopping on. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in guys. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you are listening on. Every one of those helps and we do appreciate it. If you are interested in working with our coaches in Hanson athletics, just go over and check out the website www.hansathletics.com. Um, you can find us on any social media platform with the name Hans Athletics. Again, I appreciate your support. If there's anything we can do for you guys, let us know. Until then, we are tuning out. Thanks, guys.